The Start. On Demand. demand. Hey, it's Brad. It's the Wednesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And today we'll tell you about a Global News exclusive as Global's Stuart Bell learned that a Canadian who left our country to go off and fight for ISIS has been captured and is in custody in Syria, and this reporter spoke to that man. Also, we're going to talk about crossing Portage in Maine in a wheelchair. Takes a long time, if that's what you have to do. There's an event being held in Winnipeg that gives citizens the opportunity to try it out for themselves, just to see how difficult and tedious a chore it is. There's an emergency preparedness conference in Winnipeg this week, the Manitoba Disaster Management Conference. It's on from Wednesday through Friday at Canadian's Polo Park and at the top of the agenda, Humboldt Broncos bus crash, the community response and recovery. We will speak with one of the people who will be speaking at this conference. Joe Day is his name. He is the city manager for the city of Humboldt. Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet is opening The Handmaid's Tale this week at the Centennial Concert Hall. So we'll speak with the artistic director, Andre Lewis, and Ryan Jesperson from our sister station in Edmonton. 6.30 Ched will join us to talk about free transit. We start this hour, Loren McNabb, with an exclusive from Global News. Yeah, Global News has spoken to a high-profile Canadian member of the so-called Islamic State. Muhammad Ali left Toronto in 2014 to join ISIS, but was captured by Kurdish forces as he tried to flee from Syria to Turkey. His capture is considered significant as he used social media accounts to encourage others to join the so-called Islamic State, and he's now being held in a makeshift prison. Here's some of what he had to say in an exclusive interview with Global's Stuart Bell. Kill anyone? Uh, most of the time I was doing, doing recon, even with the sniping units, I was a spotter. I mean, we didn't take much shots or things like that because of the nature of war here. I mean, it's... Uh, the distances are very far. And even when we shot, I mean, we never went up looking around trying to see if we killed someone or confirm if we had killed someone. Now, Kurdish officials want to hand him over to Ottawa, but it's not clear if that will happen. As of this week, Canadian authorities hadn't spoken to Ali, but Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell has and joins us on the phone now with more on that conversation. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. I'm reading on your online article this morning in globalnews.ca about sort of the change in character for Ali, about how four years ago he used social media accounts to spread beheading photos and threats and incitement. And it sounds like he's a little bit different when you spoke to him in prison. Can you describe his character? Yeah, I mean, initially uh, he was very active online, just very, very vocal with uh, the, the ISIS incitement lines and encouraging people to commit attacks in Canada and things like that. Uh, but the man that we uh, that we encountered in prison was he really looked defeated. I mean, this is a guy who uh, he's in difficult circumstances. He's in Kurdish custody. No Canadian officials have been to see him, and he claims that uh, that he's you know he's disillusioned with ISIS. How did you track him down, Stuart? I mean, you know, he's, Canadian authorities still haven't spoken to him. And in theory, it doesn't sound like it'd be easy just to walk into Syria and, and find him, let alone even get there. Just explain to me a bit of the process of getting to him. 
Well, I'd heard that uh, that the, the Kurdish uh, SDA, the Syrian Defense Forces, uh, had captured uh, a Pakistani Canadian, and uh, I was able to get in contact with them uh, and uh, through messaging, and they confirmed that they had him and said that it might be possible if I came to meet him. So I, uh, I made my way to northern Iraq and um, crossed the river into northeast Syria. And after a lot of checkpoints and dust and waiting around and meeting different commanders and generals, uh, finally came face-to-face with the guy on Sunday morning. Stuart, it's all well and good. An amazing story and reporting on this. All well and good to visit uh, with Ali, but... How do you get all? How do you get all your notes out of the country? Did 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 you have to sneak them out? Uh, are you allowed to share that with us? No, I mean it wasn't really an issue. I had a camera, video, I had audio recording, notes, and all of that stuff. But the um, I think the the Kurdish uh, fighters that control that region. Uh, my sense is that they actually want this story to get out because you know they're holding something like nine hundred foreign fighters that they've captured. The the Kurds have done the brunt of the fighting in that area, and they're capturing a lot of foreign ISIS members, as well as their, their families and children. So they're holding almost 2,000 foreigners. They don't really have the capability to do that, to keep them long-term, or to put them on trial, or to rehabilitate them. And they really want uh, governments to come and pick up their own citizens and take them home and deal with them. So I think that worked in my favor in terms of the things you're asking about. So what was it like trying to get into Syria then? Uh, it was it was an ordeal. I mean, it took about a week or so, I guess, between the time I landed in Iraq and all of the various permissions that I needed to get uh, and uh, just, you know, physically uh, making my way there and just trying to convince them to, to give me access to a guy who, uh, you know, he's, was a pretty high-profile member of the Islamic State. So it took a while and it was an ordeal, but, uh, you know, it was, it worked in the end. So listening to some of the interview with him, Stuart, I, you mentioned he sounds defeated. He has a wife and kids that are, are in a detention camp, I believe, close to him. I know he's, he said in one of the clips, you know, he, he just, all he's thinking about is him. I don't, I don't know if the Canadians at home are too concerned about what reuniting him with his family or what his thoughts are about being with his family. They're more thinking about the process now going forward. And does he come back to Canada? What do officials do with him? So what is the process next? Because he's not the only Canadian over there. And and do RCMP or or do they get involved? And who would be part of this? Yeah, well, that's the big question. Uh, Because we've identified more than a dozen Canadians that are in Kurdish uh, custody right now. And... uh, uh, the Kurdish officials told us that there had been discussions with the Canadian government through the embassy in Beirut, and there was a meeting in Iraq uh, some months ago. And they, the Kurdish authorities understood that there seemed to be progress, that Canada was making steps towards uh, repatriating these people, but suddenly it stopped, and they don't know why. Um, so, you know, there's a number of issues going on here. I think one of them is uh, identity. I mean, none of these people have passports, so that would be an issue. They would have to be issued some kind of travel documents. But there's also the the very practical issue of what happens when they arrive, because we know the RCMP has been struggling really to bring charges against people that have gone abroad to take part in foreign conflicts, just because of the challenge of how do you collect evidence in a war zone that will stand up in a Canadian court. 
uh, and they don't, you know, I think nobody wants these people to come back and just be walk out of Pearson Airport and that's it. So these are all things that Canada will have to um, have to deal with in the coming months. In what I've read and what I've heard, I don't know if I hear a ton of contrition or a ton of regret. I'm going to read a, a quote from your story here. I really did get sick of them. I mean, there was loads of problems, but the most basic thing was they betrayed the Syrian people and the foreign foreigners that came here. That, that, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of regret other than, yeah, you know, I got sold one thing and they delivered something else in terms of their organization. There, there's no apology there. Did you get one at any point? No, I think you're exactly right there. That's exactly what I heard as well, is that he was disillusioned with the Islamic State. He he thought, he said he went over to fight the Assad regime, and then eventually ISIS became, uh, you know, something different, that it was, it was fighting other uh, Muslim groups, other jihadist groups. Um, and he, his other complaint was he didn't like the way that ISIS was treating the foreign volunteers that had come to fight. Um, in those two hours, I did not hear him apologize. Uh, he, I asked him if it was a mistake, if he regretted it, and he even kind of stumbled through that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say that it was a mistake. Uh, that it was something he regretted. He did say he was against, uh, you know, things like bombings in Paris and, and those types of terrorist attacks targeting civilians. But no, it's you know, uh, you would expect that someone in his position would. Uh, fall on his knees, even just for optics, if he wants to come home. But uh, it didn't happen. Global's Stuart Bell, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the access. Okay, thank you. The latest story posted just this morning, the headline at globalnews.ca front and center, I just want to go back. Canadian ISIS fighter captured in northern Syria speaks out. Once again, that by Stuart Bell. We start this hour at Portage and Maine, Loren. Yeah, well, Winnipeggers head to the polls in just a couple of weeks. And beyond that vote for Councillor Amare is, of course, that vote on reopening Portage and Maine to pedestrians. But before you mark your X in favor of opening it or keeping it closed, there are a few Winnipeggers that have a trip they would like you to mate. They want you to try and navigate this intersection in a wheelchair and see how long it takes in its current state. They're actually putting a wheelchair out there today to allow you to put it to the test. Alan Makewich has done this trip plenty of times in his life and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's start there. Um, you use a wheelchair when you're in one. What What's it like to try to cross Portage of Maine? Because you can't above ground. You have to use those underground systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, going above ground is, you know, inconvenient. You have to go way out of your way to cross the intersection in some cases. And... Uh, Navigating underground can also be um, quite the experience sometimes with, uh, you know, ramps going out, some or uh, sorry, uh, lifts going out and things like that. And uh, even some of the ramps that are not built to modern uh, accessibility standards uh, can be challenging for some people. So, Alan, a lot of people are, I guess, I want to say this the right way, adding this to their reasons for wanting to see Portage and Maine open, because I don't know if the accessibility issue was one that was primary when we first ha- first started having that discussion. Is that fair to say that this has become a part of the discussion? I think it has. You see a lot of people uh, 
mentioning it when they cite their reasons for opening Portage in Maine. Um, and, you know, it does make a lot of sense. Uh, like I said, from an accessibility perspective, there's just a lot of things that aren't uh, designed to modern accessibility standards in the uh, concourse. And uh, accessibility seemed to be an afterthought when they first designed it, you know, as far as I can tell. How long does it take to cross Portage and Maine underground on a wheelchair? Um, you know, it can take up to 10 minutes for some people, depending on, you know, their familiarity with uh, the intersection and um, and navigating the underground and just, you know, knowing where the different uh, accessibility features are, like the ramps and the uh, lifts and elevators. Uh, the wayfinding isn't that great. Uh, those kinds of things aren't marked very well. So, you know, it can be uh, a frustrating experience, um, not just for people who haven't been there before, but even people who've been there a number of times. I still hear stories of them getting lost down there. Alan, you say it takes about 10 minutes to, to do it underground. Now, one of the things that I hear people say is it's not, for for people who are not in wheelchairs, it's not that difficult to walk an extra block to get around the intersection. How long would it take if you're at Portage and Maine and you want to cross to navigate yourself on a wheelchair up the block to cross at, say, Portage and Fort? Um, if you go in any direction, you're looking at a minimum of at least two football fields uh, in terms of distance you have to travel to get to uh, any of the other intersections. So, um, you know, at night, uh, you know, going to maybe a, an intersection that's uh, not as well lit or um, even in the winter, um, you know, you want to take the shortest path uh, from one point to another. And uh, you're not afforded that opportunity the way uh, our intersections currently built. So tell us what's happening now. You you want to put out a wheelchair? You are going to put out a wheelchair for anyone to come and use and give it a shot themselves? Yeah, this is uh, an idea that uh, my friend Anders came up with. And uh, uh, he's going to put out a wheelchair and, uh, you know, see if people want to experience for the, it for themselves. So I think the issue has been fairly well defined by people who you know, actually live it on a day-to-day basis. But for those who want to um, uh, try it out, uh, you know, they'll they'll have that opportunity now. What type of uh, wheelchair will this be? And, and how do you make sure that, that this is uh, respectful? This is a respectful experiment, if you like. Right. Uh, that's always a, a concern when you're doing uh, something like this, when you're sort of... Um, uh, you know, trying on an identity, if you will. Uh, so, um, like I said, um, I think the issue has been well-defined by people who actually have disabilities. So for people who don't have disabilities and, you know, they still want to experience for them for themselves, uh, they'll have that opportunity. So the offer stands for today, or will the wheelchair be down there until the vote? What's, what's the plan for it? Um, <clears throat> I was talking to Anders, and uh, the plan is just to sort of leave it there out in the wild and, uh, let people try it out and um, see what happens. Um, he's going to have uh, an unveiling today at 10 a.m. in the square if anyone wants to uh, to uh, go and check it out. What are people saying to you regarding the accessibility, as Greg pointed out? It's maybe not something that we thought of initially, but it's on our radar now. Is that mm-hmm. the reaction that you're getting from people? Yeah, uh, I definitely hear and see a lot of uh, a lot more people commenting on it, and um, you know I think that's a good thing. I think uh, there's a lot of questions we still have. Um, the city recently put out an RFP for uh, work that 
according to the RFP, includes accessibility enhancements, but uh, the documents seem kind of vague on what those would be. So, you know, I think the lack of information we have is also a little bit concerning uh, in this uh, case. We've been talking about this a lot on CJOB, and I think one of the things we heard from um, different folks within the accessibility community is just the idea it's about choice, Alan. So it may not be that you have to go above ground. You might want to go below ground in winter or to avoid the winds, or someone was talking, you know, when they're visually impaired, that they might not want to use the intersection. But right now, they they don't have that choice. Well, we all don't have that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think it sort of builds in a level of redundancy into the intersection. You know, if you... I uh, can't go one way for some reason, or you choose to go one way for some reason, uh, you know, that other option is available to others as well. And, um, you know, that's what I personally would like to see, obviously. All right, Alan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time and the access. Our guest once again has been Alan Mankiewicz, who is with the Independent Living Resource Centre. And the event is happening today starting at 10 o'clock at 201 Portage, hosted by the Winnipeg Trails Association. There's the things you can see coming and then the things that that you don't plan for, right? And so in in Winnipeg this week, we have a conference on emergency preparedness and two of its guests are from Humboldt, uh, which it's hard to believe that just six six months have passed already since that that horrible crash that killed 16 players of the Humboldt Broncos and a coach and a and an analyst and all the rest, 13 injured. And Joe Day is a city man- manager with Humboldt and, and is in studio with us now. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks. So you're in Winnipeg this week to sort of walk people through uh, the unimaginable. Yeah, really our observations from the moment we first heard of the accident uh, through till now and what our community has been through. Well, condolences to you and your community and everything you've been through and the way you've handled the spotlight um, absolutely extraordinary. And when the Broncos kicked off their their season just a couple of weeks ago in Humboldt, the game was broadcast nationally, and I was overwhelmed at the thanks that the the, the individual, the, the father who spoke on behalf of all the parents, the thank yous that came out. But one of the things that also I think struck me most in the entire ordeal was the communication and the ability and the willingness of the different levels of government, the organization, the hockey club, and uh, everyone involved to communicate with the media. How important is that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the first things, and that is even what we're going to talk about this morning at the conference, is how, you know, our mayor and the president of the Bronco organization were just so willing to do interviews right from the very beginning, even before we knew much information or could confirm very much of what was going on. But certainly our mayor uh, and and the humbled Bronco president, Kevin Geringer, were very sincere and very open in all of their uh, interviews that they did. And that certainly helped out the whole demeanor of the of the event and what we had to manage because you know that's exactly it if the media doesn't get those stories from folks like the mayor and kevin and in this weekend from the fire chief and myself you know they people start to create their own stories especially on social media so it is important to to talk to the media talk to the public and let them know exactly what happened from our perspective can you take us back to april 6th joe and and I know where we all were, we're seeing different alerts come across or getting emails and you're hearing something terrible is happening, but you're getting that phone call as a city manager to say like, 
Joe, be prepared. So talk, walk me, th- walk us through a bit of that. Yeah, you know, uh, small community. We're uh, barely 6,000 uh, people. And uh, so it's even a lot more personal than that, the way it happens. You know, end of a long work week, uh, 6.30 on a Friday evening, uh, I'm at home. And it's actually one of my uh, directors that worked directly under me, my director of leisure services, that actually came to my door and uh, let me know that, you know, his he's watching Facebook and other social media channels. And there's a lot of news about a, an accident involving either the Bronco bus or the fan bus. They weren't quite sure at that time. Uh, and that there was going to be uh, multiple injuries and, and likely, some, likely some fatalities was the news that we had at that time. Within half an hour, uh, we had already contacted the mayor, let him give him the heads up that something was going to be, uh, you know, we were probably going to have to rea- respond to this somehow. But within half an hour, it was actually the mayor that called me back. And it was the mayor from the nearest town of where the accident was, the mayor of Nipawin, that had contacted him and confirmed there were multiple fatalities. And uh, from that point on, yeah, we just started assembling our teams to try and figure out how to respond next. So it happened 170 kilometers northeast of Humboldt, so but the Humboldt became the center of the worldwide attention. So, how quickly did your team have to react to get involved in this? Yeah, so our team again. I want to reiterate as many times as I can to people that you know it wasn't our, any first responders from Humboldt at Ron scene. It wasn't our fire chief and fire crews that were out there or ambulance or anything. But we were dealing with the mental health side of things, and so. Uh, again, at 7 o'clock, we had confirmation there were multiple fatalities. By 7.20, uh, we had assembled a team at City Hall just to try and figure out, okay, wh- how do we respond to this? What is our crisis that we have to manage? Fortunately, we had uh, somebody that joined our team right at the outset there that was a uh, social worker, mental health uh, trained social worker, and she identified right away that the community is going to need a place to go grieve, a place that they're going to, we all knew that there was going to be, we had to find a central location to disseminate information. So uh, at that point, we determined that our arena area, uh, we call it the Uniplex area, uh, was where we wanted to assemble everybody in the public and uh, start coordinating everything from there. So how much of that comes from a playbook? that you've, you know, written in case of, and you go to your script, yeah. and, and how much of it is just pure instinct, uh, care, compassion? I would have to say it was probably 99% instinct and, and only 1% playbook because, yeah, there's uh, we just didn't know what to do. We Again, we've trained trained for things such as train derailments or bigger vehicle accidents and those types of emergencies that might come around and who would fill certain roles and where would be, you know, the the refuge place for people that needed to be housed. This was completely different. Nobody was displaced from their homes. There wasn't an accident scene within our own municipal boundaries that we had to take care of. This was all about finding a location for people to come and begin the grieving process and uh, and start and start with that but of course it as you all know turned into a real media uh, epicenter as well and so it it quickly turned from just managing the the public and how to get the messaging out to them and make sure that they were getting the right information and had a place to be consoled uh, to uh, also an event of trying to manage the media. And then ultimately when the decision was made to have that vigil, which we all knew went uh, international in, in its airing on TV, uh, it took quite a bit of effort to put that together. Uh, so in, 
as, as mentioning that in under 36 hours, we put together an event that in essence housed the equivalent of our entire town's population. So we sat just about 6,000 people for an event that we planned in under 36 hours. So that really took a lot of effort as well through that first few days. We're talking with Joe Day, who's city manager for Humboldt in Winnipeg this week, to share some of these stories so that we can all learn from that. I wonder, and we talked about this for hours after uh, this bus accident, how things could have been so different if the community hadn't opened up your arms the way you did to everybody and what the difference might have been if you if you had closed down or said, you know, we don't want to talk to the media or we don't do this vigil. What sort of impact do you think that could have just on the people in your town if they don't have a place to go to express themselves or lay those flowers or or have that outpouring of support? You know, I think there's a couple aspects to it because I think in within the community of Humboldt, there often is different sentiments as to whether, you know, how much this should be the world story and how much this is a Humboldt story. And certainly I've come across people in our community that feel, you know, that this is a Humboldt uh, problem, uh, you know, let us grieve. Why do we, why does the world need to watch us grieving or be part of that? But I've reminded people that this isn't just our story. You can't, uh, it was actually, um, um, Haley Wickenhauser that I heard talking at one event where she was talking about how she was so moved by it. And uh, it really made me realize that we and the people of Humboldt can't own this tragedy and say it's nobody else's concern and, and they need to keep their boundaries. And, and it really made me realize that, you know what, talking to the media, talking to the world about what happened, is just part of helping the world grieve because around the world so many people had a connection to hockey or bus trips that their kids have been on and things like that that you know what this has affected people halfway around the world the same way it has affected some of my neighbors I'll be quite honest. Is there a lesson from this? I mean when you talk to people in Winnipeg today and and pass on what you've learned um, what should be the takeaway for the rest of us because you can't prepare for some of these things. Greg used the word playbook and I think that's the perfect point. There is no playbook for so many tragedies. Right. You know, I'll say that there was probably three aspects that between the fire chief and I that we're going to communicate as some of our takeaways and with the fire chief it was certainly some of the personal connections that he had made prior in his professional career that he was able to rely on to get uh, some offers of assistance and take up those offers of assistance to help us out over those few uh, first few days especially. Um, for myself, a lot of it is, you know, a takeaway is, you know, just being prepared for the media. Uh, they, they are generally there to tell a story and, and to do a good job of it, but they're also there to compete with each other for the best story. And, you know, if you're not prepared to how they deal with their aspect of what they do, uh, it can become overwhelming if you've never dealt with uh, the media outlets too much before. Um, and the third is just mental health training. You know, a lot of us don't take into account the the impact of the considerations and the different uh, emotional feelings that people will have and, and how you need to be sensitive to such a wide range of emotional uh, perspectives within your community. Well, that's a fine comment to make on this day in particular. It's World Mental Health Day. Uh, so thank you for bringing that to our attention. And thank you for coming to Winnipeg. Joe Day, City Manager for the City of Humboldt. It is the Manitoba Disaster Management Conference, and it is happening today, tomorrow, and Friday at Canada's Destination Centre, Polo Park. And Joe will be speaking uh, this morning, in fact, at 10.45. It's the Humboldt Broncos bus, bus crash, the community response and recovery. Joe will be alongside Mike uh, Kwasnika, Fire Chief of the City of Humboldt. Joe, thank you for visiting us today. We appreciate it. Thank you.
Very excited to say hello to our friend Andre Lewis, Artistic Director, Royal Winnipeg Ballet. Andre, good morning, sir. How are you? Very good. So this weekend you've got something special. I mean, it's always special whenever the RWB puts on a production. But uh, this weekend uh, you're doing a show that I just learned you actually did this five years ago. That's correct. And you're doing it again, The Handmaid's Tale. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's based on Margaret Atwood's uh, book of the same title. And yeah, we opened it five years ago. Lila York is the choreographer. We have the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra with us. It's it's a powerful show. However, I mean the uh, the difficult themes also handled metaphorically. So it's not like it's still ballet. The ladies are on point. The gentlemen do uh, balletically uh, inspired movement, but with a contemporary edge to it. And it's a dark show at the same time. It ain't Peter Pan, let's say. No. Well, you, you mentioned that there's some difficult content here. In fact, you have a little bit of a disclaimer in terms of who should and shouldn't see this show. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, and you know, I mean, uh, my children. So my son was ten when he went and saw it, and it was not marked for life. Uh, he actually very much uh, appreciated. My daughter was, I think, twelve years old at the time, and they certainly could appreciate it. And even for, just for the pure beauty of the movement itself uh, and the music and the fact that it's live. Why revisit it? You did it five years ago. Why come back to it? And I'm curious largely because it's been um, made popular uh, on television now. And I think it's in its second season on TV, Brett. Yeah. And so I think more and more people are coming back to this story. It was something I had to read in high school. And now you have, Mm. I think, a wider population really aware about the messaging of this story. So did the popularity of it have any influence on why the ballet wanted to come back to it? Yes and no. I mean, because we, when we created five years ago, there was no television series. We felt the message in the book was relevant then. I, I don't see it being less relevant today, if anything, more relevant. Democracy and authoritarian uh, regimes are, 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 are important issues to talk about. Uh, ballet should be able to, uh, to speak to those things. But uh, essentially, we felt that uh, it, it was very successful five, five years ago. So we felt it was certainly uh, appropriate to bring it back. For those who are unfamiliar with The Handmaid's Tale story, if you've never read the book, haven't seen the television show, I've watched the first season of the show, have yet to complete the second season. I've not read the book. So when I first watched it, it was a completely sort of mind-blowing experience for me. But can you just give us a snapshot? What is The Handmaid's Tale about? Well, it's ultimately about the enslavement of women into becoming reproductive tools for men, essentially, largely. It's about Alfred and the commander and his wife, uh, Serena. And it's, it's, it's the relationship between them and the res- resistance. And, and uh, what Lila has tried to do is, is, is bring to Obviously, you can't represent the entire book. <laughs> I mean, you have a television series that will last for years and years, but potentially, and, and it takes spinoff uh, probably based on what Margaret Atwood uh, discussed with the producers. But uh, that's essentially what the, the theme of the – but it's ultimately about hope. Uh, the end of the, uh, of the ballet itself is such a stunning – and I won't reveal how it finishes, but it, it, it's just it's mind-blowing the way it finishes with a sense of hope at the same time that humanity can overcome its, uh, its challenges and, and be uh, uh, an honest place where people can grow and, and, and find happiness. Never mind the critical acclaim and the success of the TV series – According to Amazon data, The Handmaid's Tale was the most read book in 2017. 
I had no idea the impact that this was having uh, beyond the television series. And now, of course, to, to see it on the stage this way. And sometimes we forget to introduce you as Canada's Royal mm-hmm. Winnipeg Ballet. Is there Are there any plans to take this production and tour with it? Uh, well, there are discussion about taking it to Europe, actually, which would be very interesting for us. So we don't have a specific plan yet, but that, that's what we would like to do. We had taken it last time to Ottawa. And to Brandon, actually, but uh, we never moved forward with it at the time. But uh, certainly, yes, there, there, I would love to see this work uh, spread further. And, and I think with time, the, the, there's certainly interest in this. And, you know, the, the work receives such positive critical response from critics and from peers and from the audience as a whole. Actually, when we first performed it, we tried to do it again in the spring because we opened it in the fall, but there was just no dates available for us to to do this. So we, we did not uh, have a chance. But I certainly would encourage people to go see the show, go to our website, rwb.org. There's also all, all kinds of ancillary events I believe some of you will be at a pre-show chat on Saturday. Yeah, that's <laughs> your, right. I'll be hosting the pre-show chat on Saturday. So yours truly. There's a backstage tour on Saturday evening after the show. It's fantastic to see behind the scene. There's also meeting the dancers, I think, on Thursday and Sunday. So there's all those wonderful things. So you get close to also what... Uh, what the dancers are all about and the backstage and things of that nature. But first and foremost, I think it's because the power and, and the strength and, and at the same time, the beauty that ballet can brings and its ability to speak to you without speaking a word. And the emotion, because I know uh, as a high schooler reading the book of The mm. Handmaid's Tale, it was a speculative fiction. So the idea was that it could happen mm-hmm. and it kind of generated some feelings of anger because it talked about the woman's place in the home and, and fertility and mm. what, having babies and you know make, being friends with women versus men and all those kinds of things. And now we're in this climate now where we're just talking about all those mm-hmm. things more. I'd be curious to know what sort of reaction you see on the faces of the audience as they as they sort of watch that story unfold. Mm-hmm. And is some of it a bit anger or annoyance? And then you mentioned the hope at the end. Yes, but I, I think generally speaking, people feel, you know, that it is not so unrealistic to think that a situation such as what Margaret Adwood so beautifully depicted in her book is is out of question. That, you know, again, democracy is such a fragile thing and and, and you could find yourself spinning towards dangerous zone without really realizing it. And suddenly it's just because it's incremental, usually those things, how it happens rather than just... I mean, in democracies. Which is why it's resonated, I think, with audiences in terms of a book. You're coming back to it and you're in this world of Donald Trump and Me Too and all those things where you're thinking, okay, wait a minute, have we taken a step back and could we get there someday to this story that was a fictional account where, you know, women are treated as handmaids and sort of nothing more than a, than a vessel to have babies and all. Yeah. And, and and so that's we feel that it is a worthy conversation to have and to do it through the medium of ballet like we did with uh, other works like Going Home Star, Truth and Reconciliation, which was a huge important uh commentary to make. I mean, we did it with the uh, indigenous community, or uh, we did a beautiful work called Vespers about uh, environment, essentially. And all of those things are, I, I think, ballet can do this. I mean, we are proud of doing Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, Nutcracker, uh, Dracula, Magic Flute, and things of that nature. But socially conscious works are also important. Before we let you go, Andre, the, the, the individual that is yet to experience ballet, why would this be a good excuse to 
to go down this road for the first time? Well, I never look at it as a good excuse, but a good reason, <laughs> because just to see... Apologize, I apologize for my terminology, Andre. <laughs> it's all right. But it's, it's just to see the, the incredible athleticism of those artists on stage moving in unison, sometime, uh, let's say, 16 of them at the time, to beautiful... Uh, powerful music is quite an experience it's 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 unlike anything because it's coordinated it's thought out and it's it at the same time gives a message and it it i think move movement with an artistic intent rather than movement just for a pure physical intent is stronger has margaret atwood seen the ballet yes she saw it she came to winnipeg we had a pre-show chat she and i sitting together an hour before the show there was a full crowd that listened to her i was very very under great trepidation (laughs) because of course she's this incredible voice but yeah she saw the show loved it was very positive she's allowed us to do it again and again uh yeah right on well the handmaid's tale that actually opens tonight at the Centennial Concert Hall, and it's uh, playing tonight, tomorrow, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday afternoon. I'll be hosting the pre-show chat on Saturday, and then we'll be taking in the show, which I'm very excited. I've been pumped about this ever since you announced it, so because I love the show. And just another quick note on the show, uh, just a weird coincidence about the costumes, isn't there? Yeah, well, it's just uh, because at the time, five years ago, the... uh uh, the producers for the TV, television series came to Winnipeg to watch the show. And I've noticed, because I've seen a few of the trailers of the television series, but the red of the handmaid's tunic is exactly the same red <laughs> as we have. Now, is it coincidental? I don't know. It's just curious that it, it is essentially the same color. Well, you did we, it first, right? We did it first. So. Well, you know what they say about imitation. <laughs> yeah. It's a flatter, it's form of flattery. That's anyway. right. I think you should take it that way, Andre. <laughs> Andre Lewis, Artistic Director of Winnipeg, the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet, again, and the Handmaid's Tale starts tonight. There are still tickets available, but not for long. Andre, thanks for the visit. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Mackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. Here's a headline in Edmonton from globalnews.ca. Edmonton councillor wants free transit for everyone. Free transit for everyone. What do you think of that, Mackling? I think it's a good idea. Well, it's, I think it's a good idea to find out what sort of impact it might have in terms of ridership and the overall economy and the other benefits that it might bring around in terms of the reduced requirement for other infrastructure projects. Do you think it would have more people, like get more people on buses if it was free? I don't know. I think I think it's worthwhile finding out. If you've got the resources and you've got the ability to do it, let's find out. Well, Edmonton City Councilor for Ward 4, Aaron Paquette, was on with Ryan Jesperson from our sister station at Edmonton 630 Ched. As Charles Adler would say, the 50,000-watt blowtorch uh, on October 4th, talking about his free transit motion. Thing, let's automatically jump in and give everyone free transit and do a big property tax hike. That is not what we're saying at all. We're saying, let's take a look and see how this impacts our economy. Um, What does it do if people are taking transit to reduce wear and tear on roads? What does it do if we don't have to build uh, multiple $300 million lane extensions on on roads throughout the city? What does it mean if 
we are reducing the congestion that people experience every day on the road, and they don't have to be stuck in traffic jams. They can either be at work or home with their families or doing what they love to do. Ryan Jesperson is on from 9 a.m. to noon on 6.30, Chad, on weekdays, and he joins us live on 680 CJOB. Ryan, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you. How's it, how's it going in Winnipeg? It's probably about the same as it is in Edmonton right now. A lot of consternation over CFL playoff standings. We're ahead of you by two points, by the way, Ryan. <laughs> um, but let's get down. I know you got, you're getting ready to go on the air here, so we want to take advantage of our time with you. Is this an idea that Edmontonians are willing to consider, at least uh, somewhat? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate I appreciate you moving on from CFL talk because, you, as you can imagine, the host city of the upcoming Grey Cup is is none too thrilled about. Well, the we could talk hockey if Ryan. you want, Ryan. We could talk about <laughs> yeah. comparing the Jets and the Oilers too. If, if that you think that'd go better for you. You know what? This is one of those rare circumstances where talking about municipal politics will probably be the least stressful option. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, and, and you nailed it in your in your chat coming into this, where I think you say, you know, whether or not free transit is worth it, uh, you know, requires uh, a deep dive into what it would mean for the city. And that's exactly what Ward 4 Councillor Paquette is looking for here. He says, he, you know, he believes that there's validity to the argument that it that it could benefit the city in in a great manner, and and I was and I was surprised to see, generally speaking, a decent amount of support in the city for this pilot project. Now, of course, there are many reasons not to do it. Uh, we already know that city councils across Canada, municipalities, uh, subsidize public transit. It's not a money making venture. Uh, Edmonton spends about $355 million a year on public transit and ticket revenues generate about a third of that. So we'd be talking about a $220 million additional top up uh, at a time where people are feeling pretty sensitive about property tax increases in Edmonton. They're up about 100% in the last 10 years, far above the rate of inflation. But it's a conversation that I think people are, are interested in having because if you don't look into these types of things, you'll never get your answer. And if you never get your answer, you don't know if you're getting the most bang for your buck. So the question would be to people in your city, would you be okay with raising property taxes if you could get free transit? Is that sort of the, the tit for tat there? Well, and, and this is what Councillor Paquette is, is really trying to back away from because he knows that many folks on principle will immediately say a hard no if a property tax uh, is automatically tied into an initiative like free transit. So he wants to look into whether or not it's viable, whether or not it would increase ridership, whether or not it would it would prevent the city from, you know, having to look into, as he said, multi you know, I mean, you know, in some cases, billion dollar investments in, in, in other road infrastructure and wear and tear on existing highways. Um, I put the question out to our listening audience and I threw it out on Twitter and, and got some interesting results asking people if on average it meant if, if you crunch all the numbers, if it meant, let's say, a 12 per, a twelve dollar a month increase on your property taxes, let's call it one hundred and forty bucks a year. Would you support the idea of free transit? Some people said, absolutely, it's a bargain. Some people said, absolutely not. The, the ones that meant the most to me that resonated, the responses were people saying, I'm paying 90 bucks a month for my bus pass right now. So a $12 a month property tax increase in exchange for no investment, no spending on a transit pass, it's a no-brainer. What led the councillor down this path to begin with? Why does he want to get into this? 
Well, Counselor Paquette is a first-term counselor. Uh, he's a well-known Edmontonian. He's an artist. Uh, he's certainly a community advocate, and uh, a good part of his uh, constituents, I think, would qualify as probably low to middle income and probably transit users. And this is the type of thing where I think he took a look at the number one recommendation of a, of a recently commissioned task force to eliminate poverty in the city of Edmonton of the working group's returns. Number one on that list was free public transit. I could list all sorts of benefits. You'd have free public transit for people, especially in those lower income categories. You'll potentially get more cars off the road. So freeing up the damage on all our infrastructure, you could also reduce, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and exhaust. But at the end of the day, you have to have a good transit system for people to want to get off the roads in the first place. And I know in this city, the answer might be, I don't know if we're there yet to provide that. Is there any questions raised in Edmonton about, okay, yeah, we have a good enough transit system. That's the only thing that's preventing me from getting on the bus is the cost of the bus. Uh, Loren, I mean, you've, you've just nailed it. I mean, you know, I, I just saw a post five minutes ago uh, from a student that aspires to do the job that you and I are doing right now, a, a broadcast student that's so frustrated that her friends just missed some of their final exams just missed them because the Metro Line LRT, which is probably the biggest boondoggle in the last 10 years in Edmonton, an absolutely disgraceful mess of a project, uh, made them 15 minutes late for their exams. She was tying into this conversation in her post saying, we can't even accommodate the riders we have. I mean, if people have been paying attention to news out of Alberta, they'll know that in the last two weeks there have been two stabbings involving Edmonton transit users, including a bus driver being stabbed 13 times by a 15-year-old who's now facing charges of attempted murder. The fact of the matter is transit is still perceived, and I'm going to call a spade a spade here because that's what we do. Transit is perceived as slow, inefficient, dirty, and unsafe. And until you can change that public perception by making meaningful advancements in those areas, I don't care if I'm saving $4 on free transit. I'm not riding the bus to work. Ryan, what do you think of this quote? A developed country is not a place where the poor have cars. It's where the rich use public transportation. Is that a worthwhile goal? I mean, I don't I mean, it's a bit of a generalization, isn't it? But, you know, I, I mean, I guess I would feel put it this way. My wife and I went to Chicago for my 40th birthday a short time ago. We rode the L train all over the place, and we had an absolute blast. It was easy to use. It was easy to navigate. I learned London's uh, tube system very quickly when I studied in England. I used it all the time. Barely ever looked, had a reason to look for a car. So, yeah, if you have Chicago or New York or London's infrastructure, maybe even Toronto's, that's a fair statement. Right now, totally unrealistic in a city like Edmonton, and it sounds like maybe Winnipeg, too. All right, Ryan Jesperson, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate the time. Yeah, I appreciate the invitation. Okay, Ryan Jesperson, host from 9 a.m. to noon on 6.30 Ched in Edmonton, Monday to Friday, joining us live on 680 CJOB. I think the couch potatoes are on 6.30 Ched on Sunday afternoons, are they not? They are. That's that's pretty pretty awesome, man. Yeah, 3 p.m. Sundays on 6.30 Ched. We're on in Calgary, Vancouver, Kamloops, London, and Hamilton. And, of course, Winnipeg 
Saturdays at noon, Sundays at 6, and make sure you can also get the show on podcast on Google Play Music or on iTunes. And speaking of podcasts, Blue Bomber Podcast, is that up uh, today, I guess? That'll be up today. Doug Brown and I looking back at uh, the game last weekend against Ottawa and looking uh, ahead to the game against my Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I haven't, I went to Edmonton once, that's right, your favorite team in the whole world. That's right. I went to Edmonton for a weekend in 1999, and I remember taking, I guess it was, do they have have a subway? Sort of downtown, yeah, they have an LRT, and it's underground in the downtown area. Okay, yeah, that's that's what uh, we we took. I don't remember it being that bad, but we had, you know, been been at it for a while, so to speak, so (laughs) everything was great at that moment. I'd like to see the math on this. I think it's a good point, Greg. No one's saying do it. They're saying, like, just show me the numbers. So what does it cost in Winnipeg for our transit? What do we get in return for the ridership and the tickets? And what more would that might that mean in my household bill? And I might be willing to consider that because I think it may be value-add, if not for me, then for somebody else for a low hit. And what other projects could we forego if we invested more in transit? Sort of like the conversation we've had about the redevelopment of the CPR yards and the question about a $350 or $400 million replacement for the Arlington Bridge... You know, does it make more sense at this point in time at this juncture to go, hold on, we're going to have to spend $400 million on this, but for X amount of money, and the problem is we don't know what that amount of money is, we could move the CPR yards and maybe eliminate the need to build a bridge entirely and open up an, a gigantic swath of of prime real estate for redevelopment. So I, I think there are always more questions to be answered than there are answers presently with something like this, but I think they're being, it's worth asking them. Yeah, and it's hard to convince Winnipeggers to to get out from behind the wheel and onto a bus. And I, I get that. I took the bus for years. It's a decent system, but even for, from where I from where I live to work, it's a 10-minute car ride. To take the bus, I'd probably have to, let's see. At there least is no, one transfer, right? Yeah, either a transfer or I have to walk 10 minutes just to get to one option for a stop, and then it's probably another 15, 20 minutes on the bus. So, so that's it's not going to be for every. It's not going to be for everyone, right? I think that's the that's the realization. Well, I'm saying it wouldn't. You you make it free. Like the cost is not why I don't take the bus. Like it has nothing to do with it. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't be willing to see. Okay, what would the cost be to make it free? Put that on the tax bill, and would I be okay with that helping someone else? Yeah, I do take the bus when it's convenient. There is a bus stop right in front of my apartment block. If I'm going downtown, for example, that's easy. Walk out my apartment, it's right there, get on the bus, go downtown, and then I'll take a cab home later, depending on what time of day it is. Obviously, we can't take the bus in the morning because buses don't run at 4 in the morning, uh, unless it's the, those weird work buses. I've always wondered what those, I think they're going how to, those work. I think they're going to specific places, and you, you might not want to be going there. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I think they put people work with their hands. They actually do real physical labor places yeah, I, where the work buses are going. It's real work. Yeah, I would fail hard at that. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.